Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you again for the privilege of coming and ministering the Word of God to you. Uh, Jordan and I were trying to figure out if this is four times or maybe four times or five times I've been been here in the last uh, seven or eight years or so. And uh, so, yeah, it's a nice little home away from home. Everyone's always like, thank you for coming. And I'm like, oh, it's such a great sacrifice to come to Leavenworth and <laughs> enjoy the weekend. So, um, yeah. Uh, there's a different form of sacrifice that many ministers take, and I'm, I'm not suffering any of those right now, I can assure you. So we had a, a great hike. If you want to turn in your Bibles to the uh, first letter of John, First John, um, you know, when you go to visit another church and preach, you, you've got options. You can, like, dig into the archives of all your favorite sermons from from years past and find that one that uh, brought you the most joy, or you can find the one that you had the most people go, I actually understood that one. Um, but uh, I've kind of adopted the practice of just finding the last sermon I preached. It's the freshest on my heart. And so um, this morning, we just finished a study of First John at Faith Bible Church, and uh, I got the opening of First John. Uh, and I'm going to read for you First uh, John 1, verses 1 through 4, and that'll be our text for this morning. There John writes, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write, so that our joy may be made complete. Let's pray. God, we would ask you this morning to open our our hearts and minds to see the glories of Christ, and and not to just uh, see it, but to be affected by it, to be impacted by it, to to long to know Him and to experience the joy that He has designed for us to know and experience in uh, the fullness that that You have designed us to enjoy it. That joy inexpressible that we just read about in First Peter. That's what we long for. Help us uh, this morning to be moving ever closer uh, to that experience of joy because of the power of your word and the spirit. Amen. Well, football season has begun again. That game that I think uh, above all the games and sports that are played involves more strategy than, than any. I think the players who, who play football, I think, do more time studying uh, the things that happen on the field. And so I I think that's one of the reasons why at the end of the season there's one team, right, that gets to to have a a giant parade in their hometown. And they have a a huge celebration as they get to declare their entrance into football glory, athletic immortality. That's what they get to experience. And almost every time a a Super Bowl ends at the end of the season, there's always these interviews, right? And they, they ask the players who've excelled the most, Maybe the guy who's won the, the most valuable player of the game, describe for us what you're feeling right now. And invariably, they all say the same thing. I just can't describe what I'm feeling right now. 
We hear it all the time. There's one guy that gets to say, I'm going to Disneyland, then everyone else says I can't describe what I'm feeling right now, right? And I think that's because the amount of time and effort and energy that they invest in preparing for a season and then ultimately for that, uh, that ultimate game, they are completely invested. And so what they're experiencing is something that's beyond uh, expression in, in some ways. As they celebrate, as they exult in their victory, maybe as they perhaps even mull on their own glory, I think what players experience in moments like that is something that can be described as inexpressible joy. More than once you'll hear someone say, this is the greatest feeling I've ever had, I've worked for this my whole life. There's all kinds of cliches that they throw in there. And I think because of the strength of their desire to win, the degree of devotion that they put in during the season, the depth of their emotions in in victory, I think are much deeper than what we might think of as just worldly happiness. Now, surely the Bible would tell us that the kind of joy they, they're experiencing is, is an earthly, fleeting kind of joy, right? It's, a, it's an earthly, fleeting joy that can't ever truly and fully satisfy the, the soul. But for those on the winning side, it is impossible to put in to words. Well, when I read and study everything written by John, I've preached through the whole Gospel of John. I've preached through 1 John. and I, I always feel the same way. I can't fully put into words what John is trying to say. I remember when I first started preaching the Gospel of John, I thought, oh, this is going to be great. These themes are just so right out in front of you. Light, darkness, right? Life, death. I thought, this the easy analogies. No. Because as you think about the simplicity of some of the things that that John says, in terms of what the words mean, you begin to realize, oh, there's, there is a depth of, of meaning in these analogies of, of light and darkness and life and death that go, go, well, they go deeper than me, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So as I get to a, a, a place like this and John begins to describe, let me tell you why I'm writing this letter. He says in verse 4, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. I, I just want to give you a heads up ahead of time. I'm, I'm not going to be able to fully express what the perfection and the completion and the goal of joy really is, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to give you a push is what I'm going to do this morning, a, a nudge in the right direction. I'm pastor of counseling and equipping, which means I love to give homework. So get out your pencils or pens or devices or whatever people do nowadays And uh, I'm going to give you a little homework. I'm going to encourage you over the next month or so to just immerse yourself in 1 John. Maybe maybe just for the next month, make 1 John your quiet time. Every day, spend some time in 1 John because look what he says. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. I don't think anyone in this room would be disappointed if a month from now you had much more joy than you have today. No one would be disappointed. You'll move closer to the fullness of joy 
closer to the perfection or the completion of joy in your life. You won't get all the way there, but you'll move closer over the next month if you spend every day in 1 John. I'm going to talk a little bit about what, well, what should I be looking for in here as I'm reading it as we, as we go along. But what, what God wants you to enjoy is the completion or the perfection or the, the fullness of joy. And, and John says, I'm going to help you get there. And the joy that you can have because of Christ and the gospel and eternal life, the joy that, that you can have is so much more significant than even the, the exaltation of a Super Bowl champion, right? Super Bowl joy is just a, a snowball or maybe even a snowflake compared to the polar ice cap of the eternal heavenly joy that I think God wants to give his children. That's something that I know in theory. It's not something I've fully experienced. But let's see how John encourages us to get there. We have to try because because it is the reality and depth of this joy that John wants to help us cultivate and experience. And he wants us to experience it as a fruit of knowing him who is the word of life, who was manifested and, and was proclaimed unto us. That's why I started with the last verse in this small text, because it's the last verse that tells us the reason behind everything else. Not even the description of Jesus is in the introduction, but then I believe everything that follows, which is an expression of that. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete, he says. So what, what is joy? Let's Let's stop a minute and make sure we're talking about the right thing or or talking about the right thing accurately. Joy is the experience and expression of of gladness, satisfaction, jubilation, and delight. It's the the experience and expression of of gladness, satisfaction, jubilation, and delight. And there's, there's a similarity between happiness and joy. I mean, I would say happiness is tied more closely to our temporal circumstances, our, our immediate existence, and that joy, the way the Bible talks about it, it springs forth from a conscious sense of ultimate things, of eternal things, not just earthly and temporary things. That's why happiness itself uh, really is almost tied like linguistically to the happenings of life, right? The happenstances of, of life. The ancient Greeks called joy the good mood of the soul, implying that it, that it was something much deeper than outward circumstances. Happiness, uh, in, in the Greek way of thinking, was just an emotion. So if, if joy is the good mood of the soul, it's the thing that's this, this gladness and satisfaction and delight in the deepest part of our being, that's That's why biblical authors can talk about us rejoicing in our sufferings, right? You can talk about us rejoicing in our sufferings because it's the thing that's happening in the deepest part of us. It's why Jesus could say we're to rejoice and be glad when people persecute and insult us because of his his name, Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. It's, It's because we have set our hearts on finding our ultimate satisfaction in Him and in in pleasing Him and in worshiping Him and in experiencing heavenly, eternal blessing. When we have set our hearts on those ultimate things and not just 
fleeting earthly pleasures, then we can find joy, even joy and suffering, even joy and, and persecution. That this gladness and satisfaction rests in ultimate things also explains how and why when, when Christ was crucified, uh, that he said the, world, the world's joy will end, but your sorrow will be transformed. Your grief will be transformed into joy. Listen to what Jesus told his disciples right before his crucifixion. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Right? So at the crucifixion, the devil and the, the world is declaring, we've won. They think they've won. And the disciples will weep and lament. You will be sorrowful, he says, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. See, he's saying, because of the resurrection... Because there is this permanent and lasting reality that you're going to experience, my resurrection and right relationship with me, because the world's going to see they haven't won, their joy will be fleeting, your joy will be eternal. No one will take your joy from you. Well, hope. Look at that. I have ill-shapen ears. It's been that way since a child. No, sorry. I just bumped it. Um, football joy, again, it doesn't have any permanent, eternal realities attached to it, does it? And so that is also going to be a fleeting joy. I think the Bible still calls it joy in the same way that it, it says the world is going to rejoice when they think they've won the victory and, and crucified this man who's calling them to live a certain way, right? But because our joy, the Christian's joy, is focused on and springs forth from things that are, are true and lasting and eternal, I think that's what makes it the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, right? This is what John is aiming to stir up in our souls, I think, as he writes. These things we write so that our joy, notice a joy he's going to share with us, may be made complete. I, I, I love how he talks about the joy here, and, and we will get to that in, in the third point here. There's a small textual discrepancy. If, if you're using one of the, the Bibles that uses uh, more recent manuscripts, the King James or the New King James, it might read so that uh, your joy may be made complete, but all the newer translations read so that our joy joy might be made complete. Just a little copyist uh, error there, but here's, here's, what, here's why I think our joy is correct. First of all, it's harder to understand. It's real easy when, when I write something, I'm writing so that you might understand something. When I put an hour in there, you're like, wait, you're writing something so that you can understand something? It, it's a little odd grammatically to say I'm writing something so that something gets accomplished in me, and there's this collective hour there, but I don't think the our joy is the same uh, collective thing as this is what we have heard or what we have written. I think he's really saying there is a collective joy of all 
who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, that when they read and embrace and, and live out the truths of, of what I'm about to write to you, we will all enjoy it. I'll enjoy it. You'll enjoy it. Everyone will enjoy it. In fact, I think there's a very real sense in which our collective experience as Christians of, of fellowship and of sharing in the life of God together, that is part of the joy. The fact that we all know and love and worship and serve the same Savior, and that is what binds our, our hearts together as Christians. That is part of this fullness of joy that John wants us to experience. Uh, the commentator Hebert says, the joy arises out of the fellowship, that's the sharing of life, which is produced by the knowledge of the person and message of the incarnate Christ. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit and evidence of new life in Christ. But, but it's not just that we experience joy today because we experience eternal life and we, we also share that life with others. There, there's a sense in which what we experience today, what we get to experience, is just a foretaste of the fullness of what's to come later, right? So that's, that's the beauty of this. He's saying, I'm writing this so that your joy can be made perfect or made complete or accomplish its goal, but we're just moving toward that direction of perfection in eternity. This joy that we begin to experience at salvation is a joy that one day will be made complete and be absolutely full, will be undiminished and unquenchable and will, and will last forever. And that, that's why Peter described it, right, as a joy inexpressible. Like, I haven't experienced it like that yet, so how could I possibly describe it to you? What a great job we, we preachers have. Let me describe to you something I've never experienced myself, but that we'll all enjoy one day forever. <sighs> But make no mistake about it. John, I don't think, is focused on the fact that there is an ultimate and perfect joy coming, though that's true. And we can look forward to that. I really think he's saying there is a very high degree, a profound experience of joy that we ought to begin knowing now, right? He's not saying these things are right so that our joy can be experienced someday, right? I'm writing these things to you so that so that our joy may, may be made complete. It might accomplish the goal God has for us, and I believe he, he wants us to experience that today, a present joy that can be ours. And if, we are, if we're reading and we're understanding and we're applying everything that John writes in this letter, then that is exactly what we will increasingly know and experience. So that's why I'm saying here's the homework, right? Dig into 1 John over the next month. Ask yourself some of the questions that I'm going to ask as we go through this text. And I think in, in a very simple, deep, and rich way, he lays out how it is that we can know that kind of joy. The message of this book is, I think, simple and profound at the same time. Uh, as you read it, it helps you maintain a very high view of the gospel uh, uh, the ability to keep God central. This book, this letter, this short letter that John wrote, I think helps us 
keep ourselves focused on right doctrine and right behavior and right affections. So there's a lot of challenging things in here. And you, 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 know, you read things like, he who has been born of God does not sin. Right? We're like, I don't understand that. So, but recognize that there's, there's things to know and things to do and, and things that you feel, right? Affections. And, and John talks about them all. And I think often when we read a book that has very black and white statements like this one, we tend to, to take the things that we know and the things we, that we're supposed to do and the things that we're supposed to feel, the affections that we're supposed to have, and we, we have a tendency to overemphasize one at the expense of the other, right? So if we overemphasize what we know or right doctrine, then we, we very easily can become puffed up right? And miss the practical realities of the Christian life. Or we can overemphasize what we ought to do, the right behavior that God has called us to. And, and certainly there are, are things that God has called us to do and to not do, and that right behavior is, is, it needs to be understood. But if that's all we focus on, we could very easily just become a, a legalist, right? Someone who's going through the motions of, of Christianity without the affections but we can overemphasize the affections too, right? And our Christianity can just become a, a shallow sentimentality that uh, doesn't have any depth to it or, or doesn't have any practical holiness in it. But as you read through First John, and so this is one of the clues, maybe you can create a little worksheet uh, with columns or something with right, right doctrine, right behaviors, right affections, and, and just kind of catalog them so that you keep them in balance. Don't let your heart get overemphasizing one or the other. And I do think that's, uh, you know, like I'm thinking at the end of the book where he says, this is, this is what the child of God looks like. He keeps the commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. First John 5, 3, right? He's, he's saying, yes, it's important that we, we do the right things, but we're doing it out of a heart that loves Christ. Right? His commandments aren't burdensome. There's an affection in it. And a, that affection, where does that affection come from? The affection comes from knowing who Jesus is, the right doctrine, right? And so they all come together, I think. And, and when we're focused on those in, in the right way, weighing them out equally and not overemphasizing one at the expense of the other, you know what we're going to get? Joy. That's what he says. I'm writing all these things to you so that our, our joy might be made complete. We're going to focus on John's very specific way of introducing his letter here. I'm, that's like a really wordy introduction to get you excited about reading the, first, the whole book of First John. I hope it worked. But we're going to focus on John's specific way of introducing the letter here in hopes of maybe stirring up some of that knowledge and behavior and affection that will bring joy. In some ways, this passage details actually how the Bible came to us, or, or maybe more specifically in this context, the message about Jesus Christ. It details how that came to us, but more significantly, John is drawing our attention to the fact that it is the experience of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the message that brings life, and the fellowship of living that life together with other believers that motivated him to proclaim it and write it down with that goal that we might know joy. So we're going to 
look at three realities about this letter that should inform your reading of it so that you can know fullness of joy. If you're taking notes, that's maybe how you can outline it. Three realities about this letter that should inform your reading of it so you can know fullness of joy. Number one, the message is Christ. That's the first reality about this letter. The message is Christ himself. There's no greater message concerning than the message concerning Jesus Christ. This is the only message that can save, right? As Peter said in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The greatness of the gospel message, the greatness of, of the Christian faith lies in the greatness of Jesus Christ. And the greatness of Jesus Christ is, is seen in the realities of just who he is, his, his attributes. And John mentions specifically a few of them here, at least three. And I think he implies uh, many others. But let's look at the three that he mentions specifically as we think about the message being Christ himself. First, he mentions that Christ is the incarnate one, right? What was from the beginning? That's, that's how the, the letter opens. What was from the beginning. Now, this, this language is actually a little different than the language John himself uses when he introduces the Gospel of John. That, uh, in the Gospel of John, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that text very clearly states that the Word was pre-existent God, right? that Jesus existed within the, the relation and location of the Godhead before time. But here, here in the letter, uh, he opens it a little bit differently. He does two things. First, he uses a form of the relative pronoun, if you like grammar. Uh, you can see in the text, though, it's translated what rather than who uh, in, the, in the New American Standard. And accurately, I don't know what your Bible reads, but what was from the beginning what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. Well, you might expect it to say who, the one who we have seen, right? You might expect it to be uh, a little bit more personal. And by using the form of the word that's rightly translated what, he, he draws our attention more specifically to the nature of Christ being the life, Right? The, the life that was manifested. The text says that this life was from the beginning, not in the beginning. It's, it's an unusual word if he intended to communicate pre-existent state. I think he's saying what was manifested is what he wants our attention to be brought to. And there, there were many in the early church who were saying that Jesus became the Christ at his baptism. But the, the verb here implies that whatever and whoever he was, he was being that from the beginning. So whatever and whoever he was, he always has been. There, there was no mystical transformation of who the person of Christ was at any time. He was being the word of life from the beginning. From the beginning of time, from the beginning of his arrival on earth and, and before. But here, the context suggests that the beginning being referred to is tied to his being manifested physically. It seems... In the gospel, John is saying Jesus is and always has been God. And here in the letter, he's saying that when Jesus manifested himself in the incarnation, when he took on 
flesh that could be touched and handled. There was never any kind of altered state. He, he was always everything that he is. And specifically, though, he says he was always the life. What was from the beginning, right? Concerning the word of life. He's the incarnate one. He is the incarnate one who is the word. Secondly, the, the logos, that's the Greek word. You've probably heard that. The logos or the word, is, it's a word written or spoken which, which brings rationality or, or meaning. It's actually the root for the, the, the word accounting in Greek. I'm kind of a numbers guy, so I can geek out on that a little bit. The, 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 the idea of accounting, right, is the logical arrangement and records of finances, or to put it in terms most of us usually think, how can I make sense of these numbers, right, when we're trying to balance our checkbook, most of us, right? So it makes sense of things. It, it makes things logical and ordered and rational. In, in Greek philosophy, that word logos was used to refer to the rational force that holds the universe together. I'm not sure John had that only in mind, but I think John knew the world that he lived in when he chose that word. And of course, John was a Hebrew, and in Hebrew thought, uh, the, the, uh, the Hebrew equivalent of that word is tied to the idea of God speaking always. And even the Ten Commandments are referred to as the Ten Words using the corresponding Hebrew term. And so when, when he says concerning the word of life, he, he really is saying that Jesus Christ is the message and the power that upholds the universe. A little bit of Greek idea. It brings meaning to the, to the world, brings order and meaning to the world, and it brings the message of the life of God to man. It is such a rich word. Again, to say it before, he uses very simple language that is just loaded with meaning. To say that Jesus is the word of life. It, it has reference to, to being the one who spoke the world, world into being. It has reference to the one who, who is, according to Hebrews 1.3, upholding all things by the word of his power. He's much more than just a, an impersonal, rational force. He sustains and holds everything together and it has reference to God speaking and defining the, the realities of, of his moral judgments and of his own character. Even the Ten Commandments being called the Ten Words, it defines in practical terms what, what does it look like to love God and to love my neighbor. And then clearly the word adds reference to the meaning and to the message of eternal life, right? It's, he says, I'm writing concerning the word of life. If, if word doesn't have reference to the message, then we really need to get back to the drawing board in terms of just how to communicate simple terms and meanings to each other. So the message is Christ himself. He's the incarnate one. He's the word. And then he is actually the life as well concerning the word, the life. That's the third attribute that, that John draws attention to here in, in relating how Jesus is the message. Jesus himself is the message. 
um, this phrase, word of life, could be understood either as the word who is life or the word who gives life, but it, it really can just be seen as restating the same thing in different terms. The word, the life. The, the, the of is, is not actually a word, it's a, it's a construction. And I think that's the simplest explanation of what he's trying to say, that these two things are one and the same. As we embrace the message and the reality of the one who is the word, right? We become united to the one who is the life. He himself is the word, who is all those things we just described. He himself is the life. It's, it's really a, a summary way of saying he is the way, the truth, and the life. Wait, like what Jesus himself said, I think, in John 14, 6. That's the idea. He is the life. He is life itself. He is the word, and he is the message of all those things. And that's why you hear Jesus himself saying in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, he's saying life comes through knowing the message of Christ himself, the living word. Knowing him is having life. And this is the life Jesus came to give those who believe. This word life is very rich. It doesn't just mean biological life, like my heart beats and my, my muscles work. Um, uh, one commentator says, life is the fittest expression for the very highest blessedness. Scripture knows of no higher word than this word life, zoe, to set forth the blessedness of God and the blessedness of the creature in communion with God. So this is the kind of life that vitally unites us to God himself. This is the kind of life that only a spiritual being can enjoy. It is, uh, only humans can enjoy it. Only men and women created in the image and likeness of God can experience this kind of life. That's why I say it's not just that our hearts beat uh, and our, our brains send electrical impulses. It is that spiritual life. It's the kind of thing that enables us to experience things like joy, right? It is the blessedness of God and the blessedness of creature in communion with God. And back to what we suggested earlier, I think embracing the word, the life, means the enjoyment of that kind of life now. I can enjoy a vital spiritual connection a life lived in communion with God, in vital connection to God. Now, that can be ours. And that life of blessedness that we can begin today becomes ours forever. And I think that's why salvation itself is called eternal life. To be vitally joined, united, energized by God himself forever. That, that's, I mean, you don't want to miss the simplicity of have you heard, have you believed, have you embraced this message of eternal life that sinners can be forgiven and redeemed and vitally united to God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That he has loved us so much that he sent his son, right? So that all who believe in him can have eternal life, who paid the penalty for our sin. That's, that's what we mean when we say the message is 
Christ himself. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And I think when John here says all these things, he's saying, he's saying the person and the words and the works of Christ are life to us when we know it and believe it and embrace it. He's referring to the man and to the message and to the ministry of Christ of whom when we believe, we secure eternal life by God's grace. Now we don't want to, again, overemphasize as I was talking about earlier, knowing, doing, desiring, right? You can be so focused on, on one or the other. Obey this, believe that, pray this, feel that, that you can forget this is all about Him, right? It's all about Him, how all of it is true. Even all the things that God has called us to do, those things are only true as we do them with our hearts oriented toward pleasing the Lord, right? As we do it as an expression of worship. That's where the affections come in, right? So we're not just outwardly doing stuff so that we look like Christians. We're living a certain way, loving others and serving others and living lives of, of sacrifice and love as an expression of worship to God because our affections are in the right place. I mean, I, in my counseling ministry, I encounter a lot of things, right? And some of them are, you just scratch your heads. How does a person get to a place where they can say, my, my life of unrepentant fornication is just fine. I ask God to forgive me every time I sin, and God and I are just like this. I mean, I've had people talk about their sin in, in trite ways like that, and I scratch my head, literally scratch my head, and say, how does someone get to a place where they've just cast off the idea that God would have, you know, standards for us to live by? Our aim as Christians, again, it's not just to believe certain things or to do certain things or to feel certain things. It is to have that full-orbed experience of right doctrine and behavior and affections that define this life this vital life connection with the living God that he offers to us in salvation. Well, that's the first thing I think John is doing as he opens this letter, telling us that Christ himself is the message, uh, knowing him, enjoying him. And John reminds us now that he has every right and authority to speak these things to us and that it is because of his very personal experience of the Savior himself, the word, the life, the message of life, that does give him the authority and authenticity to speak these things to us. That's the second reality about this letter that we need to understand as we read it, if we want to know this fullness of joy. And it's simply to say, this is not just one man's musings about the person of Christ. This is the Apostle John who had a very personal experience of this authoritative message in the person of Christ. The personal experience of of John makes this message authentic and authoritative. He relates a number of personal things, right? That he, and, and some others, because he uses we, right? But what we have heard and, and seen with our eyes and beheld or looked at and touched with our hands, right? That life was manifested. It was made very real to, to him. The seeing 
that he's talking about here is the physical reality, and then the, what we looked at or beheld is the idea of seeing and, and perceiving. It wasn't just the physical experience of, of whatever happens with your retina and all that, but it's the cognitive and, and spiritual perceiving of the significance of what they saw in the, the person and work of Christ. That's why the older translations don't just translate it looked at. They, they usually translate it behold, right? I mean, isn't that what we do? We want to behold the giant Goliath, right? Like, think about how powerful and nasty he is. <laughs> right? It's, it's not just seeing him standing there, but perceiving uh, what you ought to fear. But here, perceiving what you ought to love, right? We beheld him. We, we beheld him in all his glory. We saw who he really was. Real perception of the truth concerning who he was. And those realities brought lasting change in their thinking. This, this hearing and seeing uh, becomes testifying and proclaiming, right? We, what we've seen, we testify and proclaim to you, which is so interesting. It, it's, we came to a point where we understood who he was. And then he changes to a perfect tense in Greek, which again is simple but so rich. I'm sorry, I can't explain it fully. But he's saying, now I can't stop proclaiming and testifying. Now that I've seen who he really is, I'm, I'm pro- I am proclaiming, am testifying, and I can't stop doing it. And John and, and the other apostles chosen personally by Christ to, to experience those things and to possess these realities and conclusions of the life manifested to him, made known, made seen, made clear to him and they were profoundly personal experiences the kind of profound and personal experiences that if we enjoyed them too we would not be able to stop talking about this is why he had to write and write and and write more and continue to testify and proclaim that's what he's saying what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you we we can't not do it and i think he is at the same time not just talking about his personal experience, but by, by noting his personal connection to Christ, he is also indicating his authority as an apostle, as an eyewitness to the power and the person of Christ, having personally heard him proclaim all these words of eternal life. The personal experience of the apostle makes his, his message authoritative. You and I have not seen Jesus Christ in the flesh, right? It's, as vitally connected as we are to him spiritually, as much as that ought to fuel the same kind of energetic, nonstop proclamation of who he is, the experience the Apostle John had and the other apostles uh, certainly makes their message even more authoritative. And that's why the message that we proclaim isn't ours. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's John's. It's the Scriptures, right? That, that's why this is the message that we proclaim as well, because John has the authority to speak to these things in such a very specific and personal way as an eyewitness to the actual ministry of Christ and as an appointee, really, of Christ himself. Why why is all that important, that John's authority uh, be established? Well, again, he's writing a letter to an ancient world, right, who who also did not see, see Jesus, right, personally, so he's writing that letter to us uh, 
in future times who also did not see Jesus personally. And if people are listening to the right voices, if they're hearing the right message, which is Christ, they experience the right effect, which is that eternal life and that fellowship and that sharing in the life of God. Not, not only that, but uh, there's practical stuff too. John establishing his, his authority is important because as he goes on to write this letter, he's going to be correcting the errors of certain people who are preaching false messages, antichrists have come into the world, he's going to talk about in chapter 2. And, and so establishing his authority as an eyewitness was vital for, for very practical reasons as well. So that's the second reality about this letter we talked about, uh, that uh, John has the personal authority to proclaim it. First, the message is Christ himself. Third, the third reality about this letter that ought to inform your reading of it so that you can have fullness of joy is that Christ has manifested himself very personally. Christ has manifested himself very personally. And I want to say this wasn't just for John and the apostles. The very personal manifestation of Christ, his coming in the flesh, his bearing the sin of the world, his being resurrected, ascended to heaven, that all ushered in an experience of life that is shared by all who believe. It wasn't just for the apostles. It wasn't just for the ones that, that heard and saw and touched. It's for all who would believe. Jesus is the word, the message, and the life. And proclaiming this word, proclaiming this message, proclaiming this life that can be had in him forever, it has as its singular aim the introduction into the sharing of this life together, you and me and all who would believe, sharing in the life of God. What we have seen and heard, verse 3, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John wanted to enjoy, to share together, to fellowship. And the word fellowship means sharing. I want to share with you in the life of God. That's really what the fellowship means. And there's no, there's no sharing in the life of God apart from all of us being united to him. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his, his Son, Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. We're proclaiming Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, so that we can share the experience of this spiritual life together. So that we can share abundant life together. So that we can share the fullness of joy that becomes ours when we truly know God and walk together with him with one another. It is such a beautiful picture of what God has, has designed our life to be on this earth. A life with God. A life shared together with God as our ever-present help and hope. A life shared with God together with all those who have also been joined to him by faith, right? That is the beauty of God calling his people together in, in local churches and bodies of believers. Even, the, even the, the metaphor of the church being a body is so rich, right? The hand can't say to the foot, I have no need of you, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. You, you all need each other, right? I'm just like a pair of sunglasses today 
I mean, I'm sitting on your head, I guess, or something. I'm, but I'm a foreign object. I'm not fully a part of this body, but you all need one another and you all need to share in the life of God together. We've all been united together by the Holy Spirit in, in a broad sense, but I think local churches in a very specific sense. This is just, I think, another of a hundred examples of how the Bible has absolutely no conception of the Christian life being lived alone, apart from the church, apart from the shared experience of the life of God. And, I mean, why is that? Well, if eternal life really means knowing God through Jesus Christ, if he is our most intimate relationship, if he is our ultimate aim, he's the object of our worship and devotion, he is the one for, to whom our entire life is to be devoted. If, if he is the supreme object of our, our adoration, how could you share that degree of common interest with another person or group of people and not be the most intimately related group in town? Like all the ultimate things of life and eternity you share together but I'd rather go hiking today. Is, it makes no sense to me. I mean, I do want to go hiking today, but that's not at the expense of the shared life together, right? Not at the expense of that. This is what I think John is saying, right? And that's why he says, I think, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and now it makes total sense these things we write so that our joy could be made complete because we're living life rightly related to God and we're living that life together with all those who have also been redeemed and rightly related to him. Well, there's, there's so much in this little epistle that sounds punchy and black and white and convicting. And so as you, as you begin to read it every day for the next month, <clears throat> you'll see all those punchy, black and white, convicting statements to the to the point where i mean i think a lot of people they read first john and they they're they're, they end up asking themselves am am i even really saved right and and you don't want to fail to ask the question of what does it mean when it says christians aren't practicing sin or we must walk in the light and not in the darkness that we got to love one another keep the commandments there's so many black and white statements but i think sometimes when we ask those questions it and and we get that doubt in our heart about things like that, there's, a, there's probably a subtle misunderstanding that if I'm doing the right things, that's the only time I can have confidence that I measure up. But I know this, uh, if you're doing those things in order to measure up, let's think about that. If you're trying to keep God's commandments in order to measure up, you will never measure up. You're, you're, you're still fallen and you're still weak. I know this from personal experience, right? So what it means is we got to go back and say, I want to believe the right things. Yes, I want to do the right things. Yes, I want to have the right affections. And I want to hold those things in balance so that when I, when I fail, I go back to the one that I know and I go back to the truths of the gospel 
so that when my doing isn't perfect, I go back to what I know God has promised in the gospel, right? And as I experience the realities of, of forgiveness and the Lord's help, I grow in my affections for him. I grow in my gratitude and my worship. Again, that's why it's so important to have those things in balance. And I think that's the reality that, that John is describing. Again, in his very simple way in John, the letter, 5.3, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. You see how he's, he's connecting his, his experience of life and his experience of life lived before God in obedience to him with his affections for him. And I think all of that is lived out in a shared fellowship together. When that's happening, I think we, we begin to experience what John is, I think, pushing us toward is a complete kind of joy, a full kind of joy, a joy that's accomplishing God's purpose and aim and goal for us. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Well, I hope that's your experience as you read it every day for the next month. Ready? Go. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, the way in which you have manifested yourself uh, to John and to the apostles, but not just manifested yourself to them, but to us as well. Uh, we thank you for the message, the word, uh, the life that has enlivened our own heart and souls through faith in Christ. God, help us. Help us to be uh, infused with the kind of joy that you desire us to have in this life uh, as we read this epistle, as we as we learn the right things, as we pursue and do the right things, more importantly, as we grow in our affections and devotion and worship to you, help us to keep those things uh, in balance so as not to be confused, not to be misguided, but really living a life of, of worship, of love for you that will issue forth in love for one another and a shared experience of joy that you've designed for us to have. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.